Hello there and welcome to Fill Me Up. I'm Steve Walker and this is the show to help fuel your film discussions. Um, so there's not a lot of big news this week. It's basically like stuff's been delayed again or there's a new casting for some films that I've not heard of yet because they're way off in in the horizon in the distance. Um, but something that has happened this week is um, my friends have decided to get involved in the podcast they're not on it but they've decided to give me some words to sneak in to the podcast so it's just a little fun game to see if uh well to see if i could get them in first um but also to see if you can actually uh tell which words they are um and i'm also making sure that they listen to it in order to get <laughs> to find out as well so a few more listeners is always nice um but yeah, because there's not much news, and uh, there's a there's a big old film that wasn't made this week, so uh, we will just actually get cracking. So yeah, so the first section of this podcast is Alphaset, um, and Alphaset is where I look at three films that all begin with the same letter of the alphabet, and these are films that I've never seen before in my life. Um, this week they are S films, and if you follow me on Twitter at All Out Walker, then you will have seen um, what films I have been watching this week, and maybe, just maybe, you have been watching along with me. Um, the first film up this week um, is Shoot 'Em Up. Um, so this is a, about a man with a penchant for eating carrots who tries to protect a baby from an intelligent gangster with the help of a prostitute. It's a, it's a lovely little little thing. Uh, it came out in 2007, had a $39 million budget, and it made $27 million. So it did lose quite a bit of money because uh, you need to make basically double the production budget to account for marketing as well. So you'd, it would have had to make like $80 million, which it definitely did not. Um Reviews are all pretty consistent. It's got a 6.7 on IMDb. And get this, a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. So critics and audiences liked it just as much. Or just as little as each other, whichever way you want to look at it. I give it a 7 out of 10. Um, which is because I don't really do half. So it's near as damn it the same thing. Um, it's ridiculous action and it's very tongue in cheek. Um, this is in no way a serious film. Like, there's not many jokes in it, but the world is ludicrous. And, like, the premise is basically an opportunity for the writer-director, Michael Davis, to just go wild with how stupid he can make this film. Like, the first kill in the film is with a carrot, so you know from the off what you're in for. Um, it did remind me a bit of the Crank films, which I absolutely love, and somehow this rates higher than them, but... I I don't... Th ah, nah, nah, the Crank films are on another level. Uh, but the... And to be fair, the action in this is only ever gun-based, really. I mean, all carrot-based, let's be fair. There is some carrot violence, obviously. Um, but I would say that having the baby there the whole time maybe hinders the amount of stuff you can do. Because, like, Clive Owen, who's the main guy, um, is holding this baby most of the time. Um, but... And because it's just kind of gun-based all the time, it does get a little bit samey. Like, it was the same sort of thing I found with John Wick 3. Like, you get some really good action scenes towards the start, and you're like, yeah, this is amazing. But then you're just kind of seeing the same stuff over and over again a little bit. Um, 
I feel that it's a little bit of a missed opportunity because like the crank films, they just kind of go ridiculous and there's all sorts of different things and weirdness happening. Whereas, like, they've not... I feel like they've not kind of made the most of this kind of... Like, just put him in this preposterous situation and just make him use some absurd weapons. Like, you've already got him using a carrot, why not all the food? Like, an asparagus or he goes through Chinatown and he's throwing dumplings at people, something like that. It's just, why not something like that? Um, also, there's a horrendous looking green screen, like skydiving scene, and it's absolutely horrendous. Like, it's hard to accept even in this film, but it is a pretty entertaining cut going from this, like, really stupidly fake kind of scene to Clive Owen just walking around a train yard with multiple bodies just splattered on the ground. It's quite entertaining, but it's it's unintentionally funny because of how bad the previous scene is. Um Saying that, it is still enjoyable, and even though I said the baby does hinder it, it does kind of throw some funny things into the mix. Um, especially when you get like the prostitute taking on this more maternal role, which can be quite entertaining. And like at one point, it gets wrapped up in a bulletproof vest and stuff. They like make sure to buy a bulletproof vest, which is quite funny. Um, Paul Giamatti is uh, the gangster in this, and he's he's just having a lot of fun with it. He's like this guy that thinks and probably is smarter than everyone else. He's, he was like some FBI profiler or something. I don't know, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, he's still just as incompetent. Like you get to those like scenes where Clive Owen's there and he just like shoots his way through stuff. And you just like, <laughs> in poor Jim, he's just like, Oh, he's got away again. Like every single time. Um, also, there's like he gets constant phone calls from his wife, which is a funny running joke, which I enjoyed. Um, but yeah, it just seems like everyone involved just had a lot of fun making this, which it it, it just kind of has that kind of fun vibe to it, I guess. Um, and I've got to admit, the plot did unfold in a way that I didn't expect later on, um, and it had a little bit more to it than I was expecting. Like it's still a weird plot that sounds like Davis, the writer, just came up with it in like five minutes, but. I still enjoyed it, and I was pleasantly surprised by kind of how much, I don't know, because I, I don't know, like, the reasoning behind, like, the baby and why they want the baby and stuff, it's, it's there's more to it than I was expecting, which was interesting. Um, but yeah, let's get into some little facts about it. Um, so Michael Davis, the writer-director, insisted that all the action be gun-centric with no explosion seen in the film, which uh, kind of tells you... And, like, I noticed that, <laughs> basically, it's noticeable. But over 200 guns were used in the film, with some being made specifically for it, which seems like a lot of guns. Um, and especially getting some that are made specifically. There's some that have, like, fingerprint scanner things on them, which is an interesting little wrinkle. Um, and apparently, speaking of lots of stuff being used, apparently 15 gallons of fake blood was used in the film, uh, with $70,000 spent on squibs. Uh, squibs are like the things where uh, if you get shot, it gives you like a fake little blood explosion coming out of you or whatever. Um, and to put it in perspective, $1,000 gets you 50 squibs. So $70,000 gets you 3,500 squibs, which is insane. Um, and 15 gallons of fake blood, that's just absolutely crazy um and the last little fact which i thought is probably the most interesting one the baby was actually cast before it was born so this woman was pregnant with twins and they were like yeah 
you're supposed to have your baby around the same time we start production. Can we use your babies? And they were like, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess so, okay. And so that means that the newborns that you see in the film, because the baby in the film is a newborn, you get to see it being delivered. And and it was actually played in a way, or not really played, it is an actual real-life newborn baby, which is which I found interesting. Um, but yeah, overall, it's just this fun, easy watch. Um, I feel they should have gone more in on the ridiculous and kind of mixed it up a bit just to kind of keep it fresh and entertaining. But it's still a good, it's still a solid film and it's still a, like, it's still worth a watch, I guess. Um, but I mean, I'd recommend Crank over them because Crank's just amazing. Um, anyway, film number two, film number dos, numero dos, number five is Snow Piercer. Um, so the plot of this is that the world has frozen after an attempt to stop global warming and it leaves the rest of humanity on a train that circumnavigates the globe from Timbuktu to Turkmenistan to Tasmania with the upper class at the front and the lower classes at the back uh, and then the tail end decides that they want they want a bit of the action up at the front. They've had enough. Um, it came out in 2013. Uh, had a $39 million budget, so basically the same as Shoot'em Up, and it made $87 million, so this one actually did okay, it probably broke even at least. Um, it's got a 7.1 on IMDb and 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I give it an 8 out of 10, I quite liked it, it's grim, but it is compelling and it's very good. Um, I mean, this this cast is amazing, it's a really good cast, it's led by Chris Evans, uh, you might know for Craps in America, of course. Uh, with Jamie Bell from Billy Elliot and Jumper and other things. Um, uh, John Hurt is in it from Alien and V for Vendetta. Tilda Swinton from Chronicles of Narnia and Doctor Strange. Um, and just everyone sells their role really well. Like, there's a range of nationalities in there. Like, Bell's character is Irish, I think. Um, John Hurt is kind of the typical Southern England Tilted Swinton plays Northern England, which I love being from the North of England. It was just so great to have like that sort of accent in this film. It was, I always love it. Whenever I hear Sean Bean or Christopher Eccleston, I'm like, yes, Northern England. Um, and then obviously Chris Evans and others are playing just Americans. And there's also some characters that are Korean. Um, I'm At least I'm pretty sure they're Korean because the uh, director is South Korean. So, I mean, it makes sense. But I'm not going to... I'm not 100% on that because I'm not necessarily au fait with all of that, uh, with with all of the different languages over there. But um, yeah, I mean, it's structured really well. Like you spend a lot of time at the start in the trail end, in the trail end, in the tail end. Um, and you kind of see, uh, a, yeah, and you see like the more forward parts of the train only as the characters do. Um, and so you kind of really feel like, the impact and the differences between the sections it really hits you the same as it would uh with the tail enders because you haven't seen any of it before you've not been introduced to it anymore like you literally have what they you you see what they see which i think is a really good way of doing it um you rarely see outside the train um but that's kind of understandable like it's it's it seems like it's all cgi there's one part in particular that looks a bit ropey towards the start but for the most part it looks really good um, and it really gives you that sense that the train is all that's left. It really looks kind of bleak and, and no good. Um, 
and as the film progresses and you move through the train, the amount that you see outside the train kind of increases as well. And like almost in correlation with kind of how many windows there are a little bit. So there's no windows in the back at all. And kind of as you move forward, there's more and more windows and you see more and more of the outside. And I think it's, I don't know whether it's an intentional way of doing it, but I think it worked really well. Um, as I mentioned, the situation and the circumstances is grim. It's a pretty bleak, pretty bleak environment. The action shows their desperation to move up and kind of be heard and be treated as equals. It's it's very kind of I don't know. It's it, like sometimes you find like action is like can shoot them up. It's very kind of casual and stuff. Whereas in this, it's very kind of thought through and it's very serious and feels impactful and feels they feel like real people fighting for like a real cause um the and and it's just really bloody it's really visceral um and can you re, you really feel this struggle and kind of in awe because there's just this really high death toll and you're like this is actually kind of this is insane sort of thing like the amount of kind of people that are dying for this and you're sort of in awe of them kind of going they really want this sort of thing and they're willing to sacrifice so much. Um, yeah, I kind of as they move through the train, you kind of see that their numbers drop, and you you feel the impact of kind of their loss, and especially because some key characters are lost as along the way as well. Um, the director Bong Joon Ho, who actually won a the best picture and best director Oscar for Parasites last year, which um, I haven't actually seen yet, but um, yeah, he. You can tell from this film that he could easily that he could go on to do that because he does just this fantastic job of grounding this futuristic world. Like it's based on a French comic called Le. I'm gonna butcher this. Le Transpers. Like what? Le Transpersonage. The Le 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 Transpersonage. Maybe. Um, but it doesn't feel like your typical comic book fare. Like I've said, it's really grim. It's really bleak. And it's just really good. Like, all the way through, the film has its twists and turns. Like, on the face of it, you could have, like, some people fighting from the back of the train to the front of the train could seem like this fairly generic action fair. But they mix it up a lot, throw some curveballs in there, and they really draw you into the drama of it all. Like I say, you get that impact. You really feel what they're going through. Um, and the end is brutal. Uh, Chris Evans gives this phenomenal performance um, and his speech at the end really kind of hammers home what what's happened and kind of the situation. And afterwards, there's just this real gut punch. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's just an absolute gut punch. Um, Bong Joon-ho, the director, um, we're, we're into some facts now. Uh, I've, I've just realised. Just realised one of the facts. Um, so Bong Joon-ho um, decided that he wanted to keep the intimidating shot of the front soldiers uh, coating their blades in the blood of a fish. Uh, so there's a part where they're kind of facing off and the, the soldiers are kind of like wiping their blades in this fish, um, in the blood of it. Just It suggested that the fish has poisonous blood that would mean like a much slower and painful death. Um Producer Harvey Weinstein, you know, that absolute monster of a man, um, he wanted to take it out for more action, but Bong said that his father was a fisherman and wanted to include the shot to, shot to honour him. Uh, so Weinstein relented, but later in an interview, Bong said it was a lie and that his father had never been a fisherman, which I loved. I, I loved the fact that he got one over on Weinstein, obviously because he's a horrible, horrible man, but also... 
because you're sticking it to the man uh, and getting your creative vision out there, which I think is great. Um, and it's a, it's a good scene. <laughs> it's a good little thing. It's a bit odd in the moment, but then you're like, when you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, you don't want, you don't want that. Maybe they should have been like, get the poisonous fish or something. I don't know. Um, there are some drawings done by one of the tailenders that's put up all around the section. And these are actually illustrations by the artist of the comic book, Jean-Marc Rochette, which I think is a really good way of kind of including the comic book creators and, and stuff in there. It's it's a really nice touch. I, I really like it. Um, and especially because they don't have like cameras and stuff anymore. So that's the way that they sort of take pictures. There's a there's a point where they're moving through one of the uh, sections and he's like, yeah, let's take a picture basically. But he just like, they all have to stand there while this guy draws, which I think is interesting. Like back, like they used to do back in the olden days. Um, and finally, Tilda Swinton's role was originally written for John C. Riley, um, from kind of Step Brothers and Guardians of the Galaxy and other such things. Um, and he was going to be this more peaceful figure, but once Winton was cast in the role, uh, it was then rewritten, and there are still some masculine references in there, like people still sort of refer to her character as this masculine figure, apparently. Um, but it's not really noticeable, and um, apparently she had spent like two hours in the makeup chair, which is amazing. Um, so, yeah, it's, but yeah, uh, she was really good in it. Um, overall, though, um, it's a really good, if not so happy film, um, with some prominent themes, kind of of social divide and stuff, and some absolutely brutal action. But yeah, it's well worth a watch. Um, there is a TV show that's just come out on Netflix. I think it's just wrapped up season one um, of Snowpiercer. So, but I was kind of waiting to watch this film before I went went to watch it. Um, apparently, you don't have to because it's basically the same thing, but a retelling. But like just slightly different like there's different characters or whatever so but um but i definitely recommend watching this film it's it's a, even if you don't watch the series or you're not interested in the series or whatever just watch this film because it's great it's such a good film um and film number three is spies in disguise um so this is where a super spy has to try and save the world with a young gadget maker after accidentally turning into a pigeon um it came out last year 2019 it's got a hundred million dollar budget so it's the most expensive film so far and it made 172 million so it did actually lose some money um it would seem um it's got a 6.8 on imdb a 75 percent on rotten tomatoes and i give it an 8 out of 10 i liked it a lot it's a lot of fun and it's very action-packed sort of spy stuff um so will smith plays the super spy uh, and he's good fun. He's like this annoyingly cocky but guy, but he's got the goods to back it up. He's very much like a James Bond sort of type. And he's treated like a rock star at the Spy HQ. Um, and then on the flip side, you've got Tom Holland's Gadget Man, who's constantly called weird, weird. And I mean, yeah, he is a bit quirky, but he's really good at what he does. And, he's, and he is quite charming and stuff. Like, I don't know. I'm kind of sick of films being like, oh, there's that weird nerdy guy. Like, nowadays nerdiness is celebrated and most of the planet's nerdy like you've got the mcu and star wars and game of thrones and stuff taking over the world like just accept that nerdiness is a part of life like it's not weird anymore like i just whatever um but the film espionage stuff is is really good 
um you get sucked into this covert spy agency and it just feels so good like like you could potentially have had it as a bond film like minus like if you put a few twists and minus like the pigeon stuff in it like it feels like that like that's that which i loved about it it's very um yeah it's just very kind of true to spy stuff and i i really like that stuff like it because uh it i don't know i think like it's rare that you like like i don't know i feel like the james bond films of recent times are this more gritty stuff whereas this is just this fun spy time uh which you kind of got with kingsman a little bit and so yeah it was just nice to kind of get something like that again because we don't get it that often nowadays um but yeah speaking of the pigeon stuff it seems it could have been any bird or animal because it's it's like a fly situation where the uh dna of the pigeon gets mixed in with human dna so that's how it kind of happens or it's spliced in by accident um and it, it, that's due to a pet pigeon that's been around so it could have easily been like a pet mallard or a pet porcupine or whatever but they really make use of the pigeon stuff like the flock that's in there like they have a group of pigeons that kind of follow them around and it's like you're one of us now which you don't actually hear any of them talk you just hear will smith's pigeon talk but he seems to understand them which i like um and they this flock follows them on their adventures and they make some really funny scenes and kind of it's just the overall concept is great like it seems ridiculous but in this kind of world that's like they've got kitty glitter cannons and serious string which is like silly string but in a very serious amount or however it's described like it just works like i just it it almost doesn't seem that far-fetched but it's just really well done like i was pleasantly surprised by it really um everyone in the film what i really liked about this is that everyone in the film has their specific role and they do it well. Like, all the characters each have their own motivations. Like, there's no, like, passive characters in it. Like, and there's no, like, characters in there that are just like, oh, yeah, we're putting you in there just for the sake of it. Like, they all seem like they've got their own things to do um, and motivations and things. And it doesn't make you question decisions. And it, it just helps the plot move along and kind of enhances the overall story. And it makes for some nice heartfelt character moments later on, which are kind of a staple of this genre um because i don't know whether you're aware of this but it is animated i mean you're probably aware of this right it's a man turned into a pigeon that you're not going to do that in real life it's it's animated um and speaking of animation they do utilize the fact that it's animated because they they go all out on the effects the amount of gadgets on display and the and also the locations that they go to like it goes from dc to venice to uh the player player del carmen in mexico to a base in the north sea there's also somewhere in japan like not necessarily all in that order but it just make it's just really good and they do a really good job of making each place feel very different and giving it its own vibe which i really liked um yeah it's just like everything's so vibrant and colorful or or in some cases it's it's not and like these things kind of make each place stand out and have its own unique identity sort of thing and i think that's one thing that they they kind of nailed using the animation before um also this is probably just a personal thing but i love the music in this um i mean i thought it really added to the film and kind of nailed that sort of 
cool but fun vibe that they were going for. Um, I mean, it probably helps that I listen to that sort of music on a kind of frequent basis, but I, I thought it just worked so well. Um, and yeah, I, like I was, I looked up some of the songs afterwards to try and listen to them. So yeah, it's definitely a good one to watch and a good one, good uh, job with putting the music in. Um, so this is actually, we're in facts, we're in facts again. Uh, we're in that facts time. The section that is facts, it's facts all the time, but there's only three and it's at the end, but it's all the time. Um, it's based on a, a short film by, or it's inspired by a short film by Lucas Martel called, this. get this, Pigeon Impossible. Great title, brilliant. Uh, though that only features Walter Beckett, which is uh, Tom Holland's character. Um, and he's actually a bumbling spy in this rather than the gadget man. And it's just a random pigeon that infiltrates his briefcase rather than the pigeon being a human spy. Um, but yeah, but it, like I say, it's inspired by it. And I haven't actually watched Pigeon Impossible, but the title alone is deserves a, a thumbs up or even two thumbs up. Let's go all out, two thumbs up. Um, this is also like the last or one of the last animated films of the 2010. So it's also like the last to be last of the 2010s to be a PG or not have a short film or blah, 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 blah. But the interesting thing that I found is that because of Disney's buyout of Fox, it's the last animated film where the 20th century Fox logo appears. Um, I've watched, uh, what did I watch? I've watched something. I don't know. I watched the new, when I watched the new mutants, uh, at the cinema, it was just 20th century studios, not 20th century Fox, which I thought was interesting. Um, because that's what they've changed it to. They've taken the fox out of it. So this is the last animated film to have 20th Century Fox. And because the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, um, has now unified with like other, uni- other international branches, like, and I think they're just the MPA or whatever now, um, uh, it's also the last animated film to use the MPAA logo, which has been in every animated film, or every US-made animated film, since... Than since 1967 which is crazy um so those which i feel that those two are things are way more interesting like oh it's the last the last uh film of the 2010s to be rated pg in in the uk or australia or whatever that's boring but the last one to have the 20th century fox logo and the last one to have the mpaa logo in it that's that's interesting anyway uh another thing that i found interesting was that this film unintentionally shares a lot of similarities with another film from 2019, and that is Spider-Man Far From Home. Let me break this down for you. They're both films by production companies owned by Disney. They both star Tom Holland, working with an African-American super spy. They have both have a fight in Venice. They both have a villain who uses an army of drones, and they both feature Ben Mendelsohn, with his own Australian accent in both of them, um, which I love, um, as someone who impersonates the super spy. I mean, they're practically the same film by that reasoning, aren't they? I mean, I'm just joking, because but um, but speaking of animated films, Spider-Man actually got his own animated film in 2018 with the Spider Into the Spider-Verse. That had its own like, have you seen that? That's an amazing film. Um, and that had its own unique style, it incorporated like comic book look, including that the onomatopoeic words of action, such as like whack and boom and bang and whatever thwack whatever um which i loved 
but anyway, yeah. So I just thought that was an interesting little thing that that it it had the same sort of thing going for it as Spider Man Far From Home, but they are two very very different films. Um, but overall, it's a good time. It's well worth a watch. The big name cast works well for it, but I think this film would have stood on its own regardless. Um, it's it's just a really good film. It's really well written, really well done. Um, yeah. So and probably worth a watch. Okay, so now we're on to a film that wasn't, and this week we are covering Gambit. So, I want to take you back to the year 2000, and the very first X-Men film has come out. But not everything made the cut. Ralph Winter, one of the producers, said, I came on board about six months into it. Everything was relatively in shape, but we had to jettison some things. The Danger Room, other characters, Gambit... It was all favourite characters everyone had jammed in. In the beginning, it's hard to narrow the course so that you have enough characters to make it interesting, but not too many that you can't spend time introducing every character, every character's powers, and every character's journey in the first instalment, without making it boring. Even the large number we had was right on the edge of spending too much time setting them all up. So, one film down, one failed attempt to include Gambit. Next up in 2003 came x2 now gambit wasn't to play as big a part in the film as a continuation of the first but well as as the film was a continuation of the first but stunt double james banford was asked to record a a cameo by gam let me start this again uh james banford was asked to record a cameo playing gambit uh by the director turned sex pest Brian Singer, um, but this got cut with Bamford saying that if he featured in other films, a better known actor would probably be cast. So, two films down, two failed attempts. Rounding off the original X-Men trilogy was 2006's The Last Stand. Now, Singer wanted Gambit to have a big role, uh, with Keanu Reeves playing the Raging Cajun, um, but Singer jumped ship and decided to make Superman Returns, so ultimately he had absolutely no say in the matter and the new writer simon kimberg who would go on to write most of the x-men franchise and actually direct dark phoenix uh, and direct dark phoenix we did the same storyline again um uh and the other writer zach penn they felt that a cameo was the best that they could do um, um but they decided in the end to save him for a bigger role in a future film so three films down Three failed attempts. This future film turned out to be 2009's X-Men Origins Wolverine, largely considered to be the worst X-Men film to date. Um, though Dark Phoenix, it'll work this time right. Um, may get a bit of run for its money though. Um, I'm making that Dark Phoenix joke because they did it already in the last stand. It's the second time they've done it. Anyway. At the fourth time of asking, Fox actually managed to include the fan favourite Gambit into an X-Men film. But I hear you ask, who is this Gambit and why is he a fan favourite? Well, Gambit, real name Remy Lebeau, is a former thief and ladies man hailing from New Orleans. His power sees him transforming the potential energy of objects into kinetic energy 
turning everyday playing cards into kinetically charged weapons that are no joke. Uh, you get it? Because you get jokers in a pack of cards. Uh, he also uses a bow staff, kinetically charging it to devastating effect. But growing up on the streets of New Orleans in a thieving gang, he's also an expert at stealing with sleight of hand and stealing hearts with his Cajun charm. Uh, he was a major player in the 90s X-Men cartoon, beloved by me and many others, um, that solidified him as a fan favourite with his trench coat, purpley black eyes, a strange mask, that look, and he's got this strange mask that looks like someone's cut out the useful bits of it. Like, they've taken this face and they've taken the scalp and just left, like, this weird outline, which is not, like, it can't be useful at all. But anyway, um, in X-Men Origins Wolverine, he was to be played by Channing Tatum, who was actually wanted for The Last Stand uh, before Gambit was written out. Um, but Tatum was unable to commit due to scheduling conflicts with G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. Um, that film somehow ended up being worse rated than X-Men Origins Wolverine. I don't know how, but it did. Um, so maybe that was a bad call. Um, after Tatum dropped out, Taylor Kitsch was brought in to play Gambit. Um, Taylor Kitsch was in John Carter, the film that I talked about a number of weeks ago. Um, he there was an idea to spin him off into his own film from that, um, but um, but it didn't happen obviously because Origins was such a flop. Um, Kitsch would actually go on to all unsuccessfully try to start another franchise in John Carter, like I mentioned, and also um, Battleship, which. Uh, I haven't seen, but I've heard is no good. Um, anyway, uh, after the car crash of a train wreck that was Origins Wolverine, I mean, it's not that bad. I don't know. Maybe I kind of liked it at the time, but looking back, I haven't really watched it many times since. This bit's over like a bit. Anyway, uh, Tatum was back on board to play Gambit in an unrelated project. He said, Gambit's my favourite. I'm from New Orleans, around that area. My dad's from New Orleans, and I like to do a Cajun accent. I could do it for real. No knock on Taylor Kitsch, though, because I actually like his Gambit, but I've always lived around Cajun people. Gambit was always like the woman-loving, cigarette-smoking, drinking guy. He was the punk rock of the, all the superheroes. Um, which is not inaccurate, I, don't, I feel. Um, producer Lauren Shuler Donner, who has produced all of the X-Men films today and being involved in some of the X-Men TV series as well. Um, she said in January 2014 that Gambit movie with Tatum was officially in talks. Uh, she said, it doesn't have to be a great big movie. It's a thief in New Orleans. It's a whole different story. Tatum's on board and I have to get the studio on board too. Um, the This new story... Uh, this new Gambit story was to be teased in X-Men Apocalypse in 2016 with a tentative release date of October 2016. Um, it was to be written by Josh Shetuma, who would go on to write the Robocop remake in Patriot's Day with Mark Wahlberg, something with the Boston bombings, I think. Um, it was based off a treatment by Gambit's creator, Chris Claremont, and Tatum called it a killer origin story, which of course he would do because he he was down to do it. Um, 
this is the only script that we actually have any details on. Any the, spoiler alert: there is other scripts that were in the work, but this is the only one that we actually have details on. Um, and it goes a little something like this: uh, it would take place over thirty years, with a five-year-old Remy being taken into the Lobo in by the Lobo family of thieves, and then skipping. Then it skips to a fifteen-year-old Remy meeting Belladonna Boudreaux. Um, the daughter of Marianne Boudreaux, who is basically like the godmother of the city, like, you know, like the godfather, but it's, she's the godmother. Um, this causes tension due to the feud between the Lebeaux and the Boudreaux. That's quite fun to say. Lebeau Boudreaux. Um, it then jumps again to a 25-year-old Gambit, who suggests a joint operation between the families. Um... This was so it would help out him and Belladonna, who are deeply in love. And, in fact, they're both mutants. Um, no, though this information was unknown to either of the families. Um, so they're keeping things on the down low. Uh, this joint operation was to be a bank heist. And all parties decide, let's do it. And they go ahead with it. But, of course, it goes wrong. Uh, Luke LeBeau, who is Gambit's surrogate father and leader of the LeBeau family, is killed along with Julian Boudreaux, who is Belladonna's brother, the latter being killed by Gambit. Uh, this breakdown, breaks down his relationship with Belladonna and both the Boudreaux and LeBeau families. Uh, he's blamed for the disaster and he's cast out. Uh, we then get one last time jump to 1983 where a 35-year-old Gambit is doing odd jobs in Paris, making quite a life for himself. He's then approached by a mysterious mutant named Jacqueline, offering him a job in New Orleans. Uh, after the fiasco in New Orleans, he's reluctant to go back, but when he finds out the job is robbing the Boudreaux, he agrees. Uh, it's also implied that through some surveillance footage that Marianne Boudreaux is the one that killed Luke Lebeau. Um, so, ooh, maybe a bit of revenge as well. Uh, he goes back and gathers a crew. Uh, he learns that the ultimate boss of this job is a man named Nathaniel Essex, a.k.a. Mr. Sinister. So you may remember the other week that I talked about the new mutants and I talked about Mr. Sinister. He's the mutant that dabbles in cloning and genetic manipulation and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, the heist occurs at an underworld auction um, with lots of X-Men villains popping up, and, of course, it goes wrong again. Um, but this time, Gambit improvises, and it works out. We don't know how, but it works out. Um, in the process, Gambit actually finds out that Essex wanted to retrieve a truck with some live person in it for some reason, uh, some sort of hostage or kidnapping or whatever. Um, and But he also finds out that he himself is Essex's biological son. Uh, Essex then offers him the chance to join him in the dark side. On the dark side, I know it's not the same. I know it's a different franchise, but join me in the dark side. Um, or he could spend the rest of his life in prison. Uh, Gambit goes, no, I don't like the dark side. I'll go for the prison, um, which takes us to a bookending courtroom scene 
with Gambit on the stand. So you see that right at the start of the film, and then it cuts back, and then you get back to it again. Um, though in this courtroom scene, he gets away and shuts down Essex's enterprises. I don't know how, just does. Um, there's also a Mystique cameo in there, apparently. Um, so that it, all the way through the film, it references uh, Days of Future Past and Apocalypse a lot. Um, and the Apocalypse post credit scene was, uh, is, I don't know, I was going to say was, it does tease Mr. Sinister, and it probably would have had, which means that you would have teased Mr. Sinister in that, and then he would have shown up in the Gambit film, and then you probably would have had him in the mainline film. So then Gambit, Gambit would probably have been introduced into mainline entries as well um, after his solo outing. Uh, producer Simon Kingberg talked about the uh, Apocalypse post credit scene in a recent Days of Future Past watch party. Um, he said, we had a tease of it at the end of Apocalypse, the Essex Corp is something that you see in a tag at the end of Apocalypse. We had talked about doing something with him, and I won't get into the specifics of it since it's no longer a 20th century Fox property now, um, and now it's part of the NCU. But I have no idea what the plan is, but Mr. Sinister was going to be part of the Gambit movie starring Channing Tatum. But he also stated no one was actually cast for the role, um, and so the John Hamm rumours... Um, were floating around uh, to do with the new mutants are apparently false um i don't know whatever um but in 20 we're moving on now we're moving to uh so so they've got this script um and they're like right let's go in 2015 rupert wyatt who you may know from directing rise of the planet of the apes uh, the gambler in captive state last year um he was hired as director and a budget of $154 million was reportedly set. Uh, Leia Seydoux, who you may know from Spectre, uh, was cast as Belladonna Boudreaux. Uh, and things were all set to go. Uh, but then there were a couple of problems. One big, one small. Uh, the small one was that Tatum had to renegotiate his contract after finding out Fox wanted him to become the new Hugh Jackman. The new Hugh uh, and use his character as like the cornerstone of the franchise. Um, the other problem that was a bigger problem was Fan Uh Fox released the latest Fantastic Four film, known as Fan because it has the four as an A. Um, to bad reviews from critics and audiences alike, making only 167 million off a 120 million dollar budget. So it lost a lot of money. Uh, this put a bad taste in Fox's mouth, and so in the words of Rupert Wyatt, they slashed the budget quite considerably, but they refused to let the script be rewritten to accommodate this. So, and at this point, production was only about 10 weeks away. Uh, Wyatt decided that he was going to leave the project, because it's kind of undo un, 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 undoable, it's, it's not possible, is what I'm thinking, it's pigeon impossible. Uh, and after a search for a new director, Doug Lyman came on board. Um, Doug Lyman, you may know from The Born Identity, Jumper, uh, American Made, Edge of Tomorrow. Um, though, after seeing Deadpool and the reaction to it in February 2016, uh, Gambit was pulled from the slate and the script was rewritten with producer Kimberg saying, Gambit will have its own different flavour and tone to it. It'll be more like a heist movie and a sexy thriller in a way. Um 
So Lyman was like, right, okay, well, I'll direct my next film, The Wall, in the meantime. And despite the writers and producers being happy with the script, Lyman actually jumped ship in August to work on DC's Justice League Dark that also didn't happen, uh, having been in a one-month mutual split with Fox. Uh, he later said it was all about the script, but, I mean, who knows, because apparently everyone else was happy with it. Um, release dates and production dates start... Blah, 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 sorry. Release dates and production start dates then came and went with the producers and Tatum popping up every, I don't know, six months or so to say, uh, there's still a desire and a passionate interest to see Gambit made. Um, Tatum was then compared to Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman, who had both campaigned for years uh, to get authentic movies for their characters in Deadpool and Logan. Uh, and Tatum said, I think we got super, super lucky. I think a lot of setbacks, uh, we'll look at them in hindsight as giant blessings. Because we were making it and we were getting a movie right at the turn of, of a paradigm shift in movies. So we got lucky with, that we didn't just come out with ours, which I don't think was fully formed. It was a good idea. We were going in the right direction. And then we got to learn from two really beautifully different kinds of a complete darren paradigm shift in Logan and Deadpool. It's basically going, well... We would have made this film, but now Logan and Deadpool has opened the doors to let us make the kind of film that we actually wanted to make. Um, Gore Verbinski, the director of the Pirates of the Caribbean and the unmade Bioshock film, which I also talked about a few weeks ago, go go listen to that, um, was hired to direct in November 2018 with a num- with another new script being, re- being written. Uh, Lizzie Kaplan, who you may know from Now You See Me Too, uh, was cast in the lead female role with Leia Seydoux being dropped quite a while earlier. Uh, I think maybe around the time that Doug Lyman was coming in, he decided that he was going to do his own casting or something. Um, three months later, though, Verbinski also left the project due to scheduling conflicts, uh, though creative differences were mentioned. Uh, I looked at his slate um, of films that he's made. He hasn't actually made anything since 2016's A Cure for Wellness. But, I mean, there could have been any number of unmade projects that he was working on. Like, he could have been working on Bioshock or something, I don't know. Um, I say that. Um, I can't remember. I think that was earlier. Anyway, um, for the next year, uh, more random statements were made with no real progress happening on the film. Uh, it seemed to change direction from a heist film into a rom-com, with Kimber comparing the style with 2005 Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Um... The one where real married couple at the time, Brangelina, tried to kill each other, which they may be doing right now. Um, Kimber actually wrote that film as well. Um, and there was also talk at one point of Channing Tatum getting in the director's chair, which, I mean, who could blame him after everything that's happened? Uh, it seems like, sounds like a nightmare. Um, then in March of 2019, Disney bought Fox and the whole thing was shelved. Uh, whether there was actually any intention from Disney to greenlight Gambit is up for debate. Um, but when they released the 60 film slate of their upcoming films, Gambit was not on it. Um, there have been rumours of a new Gambit film being in development or even a Disney Plus series, but nothing official has come out. So for all intents and purposes, the project is dead. Uh what I found really interesting about this, which I haven't actually mentioned yet, is that um, Channing Tatum actually came out uh, on stage at uh, one of the Comic-Cons. I think it was 2017's Comic-Con. 
to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're doing it and we're announcing it. And like, there was a, all the X-Men people. There was all the new mutants. There was all the mainline cast. There was um, the Wolverine stuff. There was Deadpool stuff. And then there was Enchanted Tate was there like, yeah, we're doing Gambit. We're doing Gambit. And then obviously it's not been made, which I thought was quite funny. Um, um, but fear not, Gambit lovers, because while Hollywood may not have been able to put a Gambit film together... Some fans sure have been. Um, a 20-minute fan film called Play, called Play for Keeps. I was going to say Playing for Keeps. It's called Play for Keeps. Uh, has been making the rounds on the internet. And it features all the card-throwing, staff-wielding, and Louisiana drawl that you could ask for. And it also features character actor Eric Roberts, who you may know from The Dark Knight and The Expendables as the villain, so it's got some Hollywood talent in it. Uh, so check it out if you're craving some Gambit to goggle at. Because um, it is it is good. It's well worth checking out. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, so yeah. That was Gambit. Or not. That wasn't Gambit. I think is what I should have said. So now we're on to the final section of the show. And that is Quick Fic. So this is where I take one of 20 film franchises and i put one of 20 film characters into that franchise and i smush it all around and i try and come up with a prequel sequel spin-off or a reboot um we've had my favorite buzz Lightyear in indiana jones we've had the predator in star trek we've had kevin McAllister in jurassic park so let's see what we get this time first off what kind of film we're making we're making a reboot of Indiana Jones, rebooting Indiana Jones with Dracula. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, well, Indiana Jones is all about hunting artifacts and stuff. But we can make this more supernatural. We can make him more gothic. We can make him an archaeologist who finds, who focuses on not the um, stuff um, from uh biblical times like the uh ark of the covenant or uh the holy grail but we can make him look for stuff to do with dracula with werewolves with frankenstein all that sort of good stuff i think that would be fun um maybe um he could be sure he could still be uh facing off against um the Nazis, maybe they're going for some science stuff. Maybe he's a scientist more than an archaeologist. That would also make sense. He's looking for uh, evidence to see whether this stuff was real or not. And maybe he believes in it. He's finding facts about it. He's going for it. And he's like, yes, we're going to find Dracula. And he does. And there's a face-off with Dracula. He fights Dracula. Indiana Jones whip cracks him. He slashes him in the face. I don't know. He turns into a bat. All sorts of things happening. The Nazis are there, shooting at bats. There, yeah. I mean, it will be a bit more of a horror take, I'd imagine, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Like if you remember Jim the Mummy from the nineties, the one with Brendan Fraser in it. Let's go for that sort of a style. I think that would be fun. Obviously, it can't take place in the day as much uh, because it's Dracula. And he's a vampire, and so he burns in the sun. But he could still be—he could still have a lot of light in the, in the castle. You could still make it kind of bright and fun. I don't know. Be excellent. I would love to see that. Indiana Jones, but gothic stuff. 
and it's he's going for Dracula. Um, he's going to prove these myths. Maybe he could. Maybe he's like a myth hunter rather than a an archaeologist, and he's going to prove Dracula's real. He goes to maybe prove that the Bigfoot's real. He goes to prove about the abominable snowman, all that sort of good stuff. Um, I would love that. Um, do it. Somebody do that. That would be good fun. I love that. Um, anyway, if you've got any other ideas about how you could uh, incorporate Dracula into uh, Indiana Jones series and how you could reboot it, I would love to hear that. Um, and if you have the capabilities to make my idea happen, please do it because I would love to see it. Um, anyway, um, if you would like to uh, contact me for anything in particular, let's talk about Gambit and laugh at how it's... It, it didn't get made, but I, I actually would have loved to see it. Um, but it is quite funny just hearing it about it, <laughs> uh, especially over the years and just going, oh, they're doing, oh, that's how, uh, oh, yeah. And then it just finally got cancelled. Um, yeah, if you'd like to contact me for anything, um, then you can do that at All Out Walker on Twitter or by email at filmmeuppod at outlook.com. Um, also, if you follow me on Twitter at All Out Walker, you will see. The films that I will be watching next week, it will be for Alpha Set, for Set T, and I will also, uh, uh, at the same time, I'll also mention the the words that I was uh, tasked with sneaking in. So if you have been paying attention, if you've been listening, uh, you can have a guess and now we'll, uh, what words, and I will let you know on Monday what words I, was, I snuck in there. Um at uh, the behest of my friends um yeah thank you very much for listening if you could give me a review or a rating on your platform of choice that would be absolutely great and if you could also tell a friend that would absolutely be much appreciated um uh, yeah thank you very much for listening and i will see you next time goodbye